This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. It was after school and Angela took her camera to a nearby park to take some photos for a school photography assignment, but she was unaware of the fate that would befall her. This is Apple for the Teacher, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Anna Thomas. Today's episode is called Prime Suspect. The schoolgirl was murdered, but who did it? Just a note before starting, Apple for the Teacher does not name perpetrators out of respect to the victims. Back in 1988, just over 30 years ago, a family emigrated from Colombia to the US. They found a new home in a place called Peekskill, about an hour north of New York. In the Correa family, there were two daughters, their mother and their stepfather. One of their daughters was 14-year-old Angela, and after having moved to their new home, Angela was enrolled at the Peekskill High School. On her first day, she entered the school office and was introduced to the school principal, who welcomed her to their school. Also in the office that day was a boy named Freddie, who was waiting to talk to the principal after a teacher had sent him out of the classroom for being disruptive. Freddie had been a frequent visitor to the principal's office, but on that day, instead of giving Freddie a detention, the principal decided to give him the duty of showing Angela around the school. Angela settled in well to her new school and became close friends with a girl named Ruthie, who was also Freddie's girlfriend. At school one day, the three of them were hanging out together and Ruthie and Freddie were talking about a party they were going to that night. There was a park in the area where they lived, which was a popular spot for teens to hang out together. It was in a wooded area and the spot was called the pit. They would go there at night and have a fire going while talking and drinking. Of course, Ruthie could not tell her parents that's where she was going, but would tell them she was staying over Angela's place for the night. Angela was known as being a very quiet and sensible girl who wasn't really the party type, so Ruthie knew her parents would approve. Although Angela had been to the pit, it really wasn't her thing, and she didn't go with them that night, even though they asked her to come along. It was then in November 1989, and Angela left school at the end of the day. She went home and changed into some casual clothes and grabbed her camera and a Walkman cassette player. She then headed over to the park, where the pit was, as she had to do a photo assignment for school. She listened to one of her favourite bands on her Walkman, The New Kids on the Block. Back at home, dinner time came around, but Angela still hadn't arrived home. Her family ate dinner, noting how unusual it was that Angela hadn't come home yet. Soon her parents became concerned, and her father went out to look for her, while her sister phoned her friends, but no one had seen her. Her father returned, but hadn't been able to find her, so they decided to call the police. Angela then remained missing for two days, until a sniffer dog finally found her in the woods, not far from the pit. She was laying on her back, partially clothed and covered with leaves. There were drag marks in the location, indicating that she had been moved, and the marks on her face showed that she had been dragged face down. Angela had been raped and strangled. 
they were able to obtain DNA evidence at the scene from semen and also hairs that were found which did not belong to her. Some of her clothes were found nearby as well as her Walkman and camera. The police also found a small piece of paper near her body which had something written on it. But they had to wait until the paper was dry in order to be able to read what it said. It was dated the same day as her murder and some of it was smudged so it didn't really make sense but they were able to read the following words. Dear Freddy, I can't take it. Have those eyes. They kill me. It was known that Angela had had a crush on Freddy so the police brought him in for questioning. He was asked if he had ever written a love letter to Angela to which he replied no he hadn't and they then asked him if she had written him a love letter and he again replied no. He stated that he had been playing basketball with three other friends after school on the day that Angela disappeared and the police were able to confirm this alibi. The police also spoke to residents who lived around the park and a man who lived across the road told police that he had seen a dark car with two Hispanic men who looked like they were construction workers. This description fitted Angela's stepfather, who was Hispanic and also a construction worker, and he also owned a dark car. So the police investigated her stepfather, but he was found to have an alibi as he had been at work that day, so he was cleared of any suspicion. The FBI then put together a profile on Angela's killer, and the suspect was thought to be white or Hispanic, less than 25 years old, but most likely under 19, and was also shorter than 5 foot 10. They believed he knew Angela, that he was insecure around women, he was also a loner, or possibly had a physical handicap, or was mentally slow. He could have also been a troublemaker at school, not involved in school activities, into drugs and alcohol, and known to have a history of assault. The next line of inquiry that the police pursued was to attend Angela's wake and funeral, speculating that her killer may also attend. So at her wake, they paid close attention to everyone in attendance. Angela had four different wake sessions, and it was noted that one particular boy attended each of the wakes but it was his behaviour that made him stand out to the police. He was visibly upset when viewing Angela, to the point of crying uncontrollably. Not even her own family showed such emotion. But when asked, they didn't even know who he was. The police were able to determine that the boy went to Angela's school, and his name was Geoffrey. Other students told them that he had had a crush on Angela, but that she hadn't been interested in him. But it was what happened at one of the wakes which made the police suspect that he may have been her killer. A note was found in Angela's casket and it read as follows. I am attracted to you. You are a beautiful, intelligent girl. I wish I could have told you before this. If I could have told you, we could have been together and I could have stopped this from happening. I could have protected you. The police believed it was Geoffrey who put this note in her coffin. He also fitted their profile of an awkward teen who had known Angela, and the other students at the school also described him as a loner. The police then conducted interviews with Geoffrey, and he stated that he and Angela had been in a few classes together, but that he didn't know her very well. 
but it was what happened next which really surprised the police. The boy offered to go with them to the crime scene and proceeded to speculate about what he thought may have happened and how the crime may have been perpetrated. And the police noted that he had provided details that only the killer would have known. So due to his strange behaviour at the wake and also inserting himself into Angela's murder, the police believed that they had found the killer and then proceeded to try to get him to submit to a polygraph test and also to provide blood for DNA testing. They suggested that it was in his interest to submit to these tests which would enable him to be ruled out. Jeffrey happily agreed, which pleased the police as they were convinced the result would show that he was Angela's killer. Now at that time, he was 16 years of age and the law stated that he didn't require parental permission for the tests, so they went ahead without his parents' knowledge. And the results of the polygraph indicated deception. He was informed that he had failed the test, which indicated that he had killed Angela. Jeffrey vigorously denied the allegation, but faced hours of interrogation over a number of days until he finally provided a written statement where he confessed to Angela's murder. And the confession read in part. And it also needs to be noted here that the confession was written in third person, although he was referring to himself. Quote, the guy caught up to Angela on the path. He said hello. She said, Jeffrey. He said, don't see another guy. Angela responded, don't tell me what to do. And at this point, he then reverts to first person. I lost my temper. She started to walk away. So I tackled her. And then I grabbed her by the throat and then put my hand over her mouth. I may have done it for too long. I ripped off her bra. After making this confession, Jeffrey collapsed to the floor and cried uncontrollably. The evidence from the crime scene was analysed and it was determined that the semen and the hairs did not match Jeffrey. And it was then that the case took a turn which surprised everyone. Jeffrey recanted his confession, saying he had totally made it up and profusely denied killing Angela. While being held in jail, he became suicidal and was hospitalised at a children's psychiatric hospital where he stayed for the next five months. So the case eventually went to trial and the defence presented their argument that no one had identified Jeffrey or placed him at the scene of the murder. There was also no physical evidence that connected him to the crime as the seminal fluid and the hair excluded him. So while the defence argued that Jeffrey should be found not guilty, the prosecution presented their argument that Jeffrey had made a full confession to the murder. Not only that, but his own behaviour at Angela's wake was suspicious, as well as the detail that he had provided at the crime scene, which only the killer would have known. So based on all of this, do you think that Jeffrey was found guilty or not guilty? Jeffrey was ultimately convicted for the murder of Angela Correa and received 15 years to life. He made the following statement, quote, I didn't do anything. I've already had a year of my life taken from me for something I didn't do, and I'm about to lose more time and I didn't do anything. I will be back on appeal. Justice will yet be served. I will be set free. 
After being sentenced, Jeffrey made a number of appeals to have his case re-examined, which were all denied. With all state appeals exhausted, he then tried to appeal to the federal court, but his conviction and sentence was upheld, and a subsequent petition to the US Supreme Court was also denied. Jeffrey also tried repeatedly to have the district attorney run the DNA samples from the crime scene through the national DNA databases, but these requests were repeatedly denied. He then had his case taken up by the Innocence Project, and after a new district attorney took office, named Janet DeForay, she agreed to have the DNA searched through the database. And would you believe that a match was found which belonged to a man who was already serving a life sentence for another murder? This man subsequently confessed to raping and killing Angela. So the case against Jeffrey was officially dismissed, and by this time he was 33 years old and had spent 16 years in prison for a crime he did not commit, which was half of his life. After his exoneration, the district attorney, who had been instrumental in freeing Jeffrey, requested an inquiry into his conviction, and the inquiry was tasked with finding out just what had gone wrong to affect the wrongful conviction of Jeffrey Deskovic. So you will now hear a summary of the findings. It was concluded that the police put all of their focus on Jeffrey very early in the case and that he had been interrogated in a way that exploited his youth and naivety, which ultimately resulted in a false confession. It was also found that Jeffrey had been interrogated on a number of occasions and for hours on end, and that these should have been recorded, but it was discovered that only certain portions had been recorded. As they were only selective, the recordings didn't provide a complete and therefore accurate report of the interrogations. One of the officers offered the explanation that he had stopped the recording when he went to get a cup of coffee and then forgot to turn it back on. The officers had stated that parts of the interrogation had become angry and confrontational, but these parts had not been recorded. So who was acting in this manner? Was it the police or Jeffrey? During one part of the interrogation, the police stated that Jeffrey had drawn a map of the crime scene, which he had prompted, not the police. It allegedly showed three locations. The path where Angela was assaulted, the spot where the rape took place, and the location where she had been found. This part had also not been recorded, but at the trial, the prosecution asserted that the drawing had been accurate and that the details had never been released to the public. Therefore, it was only something the killer would have known. But without the recording, it could not be confirmed what Jeffrey had said and what details the police may have provided him which were used in the drawing. The police also failed to record the polygraph examination, and by the end, Jeffrey had confessed and then laid down under the desk in a fetal position while crying uncontrollably. The test had been conducted in another location, not at the police station. The officers explained that they had mistakenly left their recording devices back at the police station. Hmm, interesting. So in the absence of these recordings, the jurors had to rely on the accounts made by the police, 
So the question is, was the lack of recording deliberate and tactical? The autopsy also had noted that Angela had not been a virgin, but there had never been any attempt to locate anyone that she may have had intimate relations with, as they had been convinced that Jeffrey was guilty. Much of the prosecution's argument centred around the fact that Jeffrey knew various details about the crime that only the killer would know. However, he could have known this information if the police had directly or inadvertently communicated these details during his questioning. Alternatively, Jeffrey could have heard these details through the media or from the students and staff who had been interviewed at the school. The prosecution also argued that the hairs found on Angela that didn't match Jeffrey actually belonged to the medical examiners who had autopsied Angela. But despite making this argument, they never sought to test hair samples belonging to these examiners because, again, if they matched, then their own theory that Jeffrey was guilty would have been exposed. And Jeffrey's own defence team made a number of errors in how they represented him. As it was Jeffrey's confession which sealed his fate, the defence were tasked with trying to persuade the jurors why a person would confess to something they didn't do. But despite there being psychiatric evidence that Jeffrey had been in a particularly vulnerable state which resulted in a false confession, the defence did not present this information. The most crucial evidence that should have exonerated Jeffrey was the lack of a DNA match. However, the defence failed in their duties to adequately question the forensic biologists or the FBI DNA experts who had provided this evidence. So they had failed to make the most of that evidence, which was at the centrepiece of the case. And there was something else that happened during the trial which was just so bizarre. Cleaners had been cleaning the courtroom, and would you believe they discarded some of the physical evidence, albeit by mistake? The clothing worn by Angela had been left in the courtroom in a plastic garbage bag. So the cleaners threw it out thinking it was just rubbish. Jeffrey had stated that he had ripped off Angela's bra. However, it had been a pullover bra with no straps or clips. So being able to rip it off seemed unlikely. But because the bra had been thrown out, the defence had not been able to present this argument. The jury had seen a photograph of the bra but wanted to see the physical bra which of course wasn't possible. So this affected the fairness of Jeffrey's trial. The inquiry pointed to tunnel vision being a crucial factor in this case, which has been identified time and time again as resulting in wrongful convictions. Those who have examined Jeffrey's case believe it was a classic case of tunnel vision. Jeffrey's behaviour at Angela's wake was certainly odd, but it was interpreted as Jeffrey being the killer who was deliberately inserting himself into the case. So this was seen as being suspicious, although it could have been the actions of someone who had been genuinely affected by what happened to Angela. And here is how one person viewed all of this. Quote, Jeffrey's actions could have been, and indeed apparently were, those of a troubled 16-year-old, who having experienced the death of a peer for the first time, became obsessed with it and naively believed the detectives, who fed him pizza 
and spent time with him discussing the case, would invite him into their investigation if he could prove himself worthy. Had the detective's initial theory been correct, then their tactics would likely have been credited with snaring a killer. Because their gut reaction proved tragically wrong, however, those same tactics produced a false confession and procured a wrongful conviction. So the police ultimately succeeded in getting a confession from Jeffrey, although it's not exactly known how they did this, as so much of the questioning was not recorded. Jeffrey had been questioned on a number of different occasions over a number of weeks, so it appears that they were able to finally break him down. They had already known from others that he had psychological difficulties, and besides the fact that he hadn't had any dealings with the justice system, the police realised that he would have been incapable of defending himself, and of course, they did all of this without parental permission. And in fact, the polygraph was done during a school day, and so his family would have just thought he was at school. And I can see how they would have befriended him by discussing his theories about Angela's death, making him feel that he was an important part of the investigation. And it must also be noted that he stated that he had agreed to the polygraph because when he passed, he would be allowed to fully participate in the investigation. And it must also be noted that the prosecution pressed for an indictment even before the scientific testing of the DNA had been completed. So this shows they were convinced of Jeffrey's guilt, or it could have been as a result of their desire to get a quick resolution of the case. The profile that the police made of Angela's killer also played an important part in the case. As the person was believed to be under 19, this resulted in the police focusing on the students at Angela's school, which in itself was a reasonable line of inquiry. However, it may have caused other lines of inquiry not to be pursued. So the profile was correct in that Jeffrey was around 5 foot 10, white and under 19 years old. The police had also apparently received information from people who knew Jeffrey, who described him as being emotionally handicapped, and they were informed that Jeffrey had allegedly assaulted his own mother. So these details seemed to fit with the profile. But when the real killer was eventually identified and confessed, his profile did not match the profile created of Angela's killer. He was African American, not white or Hispanic, and around 30 years old, and he had been a total stranger to Angela. So the inquiry concluded that mistakes had been made both on the prosecution and defence side. Jeffrey was found guilty because the jury gave more weight to the confession than the DNA evidence. Besides Jeffrey's DNA not matching the semen or the hair, his fingerprints also had not been found on any of the items at the crime scene. So Jeffrey spent 16 years in prison, but what he did after being exonerated is just remarkable. He filed a lawsuit for wrongful imprisonment and was successful, receiving $41 million in compensation. But due to a pre-trial settlement, he ended up receiving $10 million, which he then used to set up a foundation for criminal justice reform. He also went to college, attaining a bachelor's degree in behavioural science and then a master's degree, followed by a law degree. 
So now take a listen here to Jeffrey himself. He talks about how he was interrogated and what led to his confession. He then talks about what it was like when he was finally exonerated. And suddenly these two men uh, got out of a car wearing long yellow trench coats and they were calling my name. And, you know, they, they identified themselves as police officers. And, you know, initially I was skeptical of that, but, you know, they showed me their badge and their car radio and everything else. And they told me that they wanted me to come down to the police station to discuss the Correa murder. They wanted me to help them out. And I told them that I didn't know anything about the crime and I didn't see how I could possibly be helpful. And, you know, they, they insisted and I resisted and eventually they persuaded me to go to the police station. And they, you know, yeah. they, they, they showed me photos of her. They, they, they accused me of committing the crime and, you know, they engaged in a lot of third degree tactics with me and they really scared the hell out of me. And, you know, and I wanted to leave. And one of the detectives said, well, how, how is that going to look if you storm out of here? And so that got me back into the chair. And then they switched things up. And, you know, Jeff is this junior detective helper theme uh, was created by them. You know, they would say, you know, and so from that point forward for about six weeks, they believed, they played this cat and mouse game with me in which half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect and other times they would pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like the kids won't talk freely around us, but they will around you. Let us yeah. know if you hear anything. Stop in from time to time. They ask me opinion questions and congratulate me that my opinion was, was correct. You know, so that's how the dynamic always was. They would start out talking to me like a suspect. And when they would push too hard, I'd become frightened and want to get away from them. Then this Jeff is junior detective helper thing would come, would, would, they would play that. And then they also had that good cop, bad cop, where one officer was pretending to be my friend. And I began to look at him as a father figure. And remember that the junior detective helper thing was particularly effective because I, when I was a teenager, I, excuse me, before I was a teenager, I wanted to be a cop. So that was how they wrote me in. And eventually they got me to uh, agree to take a lie detector test by telling me that some new information had come in and they wanted to share that with me, but I have to take and pass a, po a polygraph first. And so the police uh, got me to agree, as I mentioned, to do the polygraph by, by what they said to me. And also the next day, rather than report to the high school, I instead went to the police station for the test. It was a school day. So my mother and grandmother thought I was in school, so they didn't call around looking for me. Uh, they continued the psychological manipulation by having me, uh, and this was 40 minutes away by car. So they put me in the car with the good cop and the other two law enforcement were uh, officers were riding in the car behind me. Uh, they told me that we were gonna stop at a diner to eat, although we never did. And uh, they drove me 40 minutes away by car, which meant I didn't know where I was anymore. And so I, I, I was totally dependent upon them. I mean, I didn't have any money on me, no independent way of escape. Uh, they didn't, I didn't have an attorney present. They didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. The polygraphist was actually a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator who uh, was dressed as a civilian. He was pretending not to be a cop. He never read me my rights. He gave me a four page brochure, which claimed to explain how the polygraph worked, but then had a lot of big words in it that I didn't understand, but I figured, well, I'm here to help the police, so what does it matter? Let's just get on with it. 
uh, from there, he uh, put me in a small room and he gave me countless cups of coffee. Um, seems clear he did that in order to get me nervous. Then he attached me to this machine and then he launched into his third degree tactics. So he raised his voice at me. He, he uh, invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions over and over again. And he kept that up for six and a half to seven hours. Uh, you know, each hour passed, my fear increased in proportion to the time. And uh, eventually he said, you know, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the polygraph test results that you did. We just want you to verbally confirm it. And when he said that to me, it really shot my fear through the roof. And at that point, the officer who had been pretending to be my friend, he came in the room and told me that the other officers were going to harm me, but they'd been holding them off, but couldn't do so indefinitely, that uh, I had to help myself. Then he said, look, just tell them what they want to hear. You can go home afterwards. You're not going to be arrested. So being young, naive, frightened, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, just being concerned, my safety in the moment, I took the out which he offered and I made up a story based on the information he had given them he had given me in the course of the interrogation by the time it was all said and done i uh, collapsed on the floor in a fetal position crying uncontrollably and obviously i was arrested i was charged with a murder and rape i lost most of my friends when i was um, convicted I, I had a couple of friends that stuck with me for a couple of years but eventually uh, what happens what typically happens in most of the cases you know your friends and your family they all fall by the wayside and you you end up really essentially by yourself I mean, my mother was the only one who consistently came to see me but in the last six years i was lucky if i saw her once every six months relations with my family i mean that was one thing missing the natural cycles of, of life i mean births deaths graduation the prom uh getting education and, and working on a career all at an ordinary point of life where that normally happens. Uh, and then, of course, there's um, psychological after effects of being wrongfully imprisoned. The judge told me that I uh, said that I was, um, the conviction had been overturned, that I was, um, you know, free to, free to leave. And I got ready to get up to leave the courtroom. And after I took a step, just the enormity of the moment kind of hit me. And I had to sit back down, and I just was kind of like overcome with with the moment. I just mentally couldn't accept that this was that this uh, you know was over. So I, I sat I sat there for about 20 minutes. I cleared the courtroom. I think the bailiffs realized I was going through a mental difficulty. Um, after the 20 minutes was up, I, I got up and I started to walk towards the door. And with each step that I took, and nobody stopped me, it became. Uh, um, more, more and more real. Uh, when I, st I remember when I stepped outside of the courtroom, it was uh, it was a really nice blue sky. There wasn't a cloud to be seen. The sun was the sun was on my face, and I was um, greeted not just by my extended family, by a lot of but a lot of the students and volunteers and staff of the Innocence Project, and they all um, were clapping that I had made it and. When it was time to speak at the press conference, which was just a few feet from there, when it was my turn to speak, I gave a off-the-cuff two-and-a-half-hour spiel of everything I ever wanted to say over the years but could never quite get anyone to hear me. It felt really surreal. I mean, I, those were actually my first words of uh, freedom. Uh, I stepped to the microphone and I actually asked, uh, is this really happening?
What really floored me about this case was just how easy it ultimately was to have Jeffrey exonerated. All it took was a new district attorney to agree to have the DNA run through the database. That was all that was needed. His foundation is called Deskovic Foundation. It has successfully exonerated three people and is working on many others. You can make a donation to the foundation online, which I was only happy to do. Now, there are just no words to describe the tragedy that happened to poor Angela, but also to Jeffrey. But I found something else which is even more tragic about this case. For the first time on my podcast, I could not find a single photo of Angela, but she is on the Find a Grave website. So if you'd like to leave her a message, her name is Angela Correa, C-O-R-R-E-A. And now let's preview the next episode. It's called Homebound. The schoolboy tried to find his way back home. Did he make it? And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote, and you can decide if you agree with it. It is better that ten guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffers. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.